in Judges chapter 7. For seven years, Midian has been raiding Israel, taking all of their food, all of their livestock, basically leaving them with no way to provide for themselves. This has been going on for seven years until finally the people cry out to God. And when they cried out to God, God chose Gideon. But Gideon wasn't ready. He wasn't prepared for what it was God wanted him to do. And so what we've been studying for the past couple of weeks and what will continue is we're watching God prepare Gideon. Now most of us know Gideon as a person with weak faith. He was threshing wheat in a wine press. Uh, He had this very contentious attitude with the angel of the Lord. And uh, he even refused to believe him without proof. He did tear down his father's idols, but he did it at night. And then after God had formed an army, he still didn't have faith enough to invade. And he set up fleece before God twice. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see Gideon lose heart again. And so why is Gideon in the hall of faith? Why? Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the hall of faith. And the reason is because that chapter opens with a definition of what faith is. And then it begins to move through the Bible, talking about all of the men and women in the Bible who have had great faith. When you get all the way down to verse 32, you see Gideon. So you've got Moses, and then you've got Gideon. Now, to be fair, Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press, but that was very dangerous. He was taking a risk to provide. The reason it was dangerous is, the reason we know it was dangerous is because he was doing it in a wine press. And, you know, even though he did it at night, he did, he did tear down his father's idols. He went against his dad, his dad's family, and everybody in the city. That was dangerous. It was so dangerous that they all ended up on his front lawn wanting to kill him. And God formed an army, and when he did that, he put Gideon in charge. And being in charge is no picnic either. But the Hall of Faith and the Hall of Fame are two different things. We tend to think of the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame, if someone is inducted into that, It means that a committee has recognized the extraordinary abilities of an athlete. Um, So the spotlight is on the athlete. The the focus and the credit is on the athlete. But in the Hall of Faith, it's different because we are not encouraged to elevate those people. What we're actually encouraged to do is imitate their faith. Because God, of course, is the real hero. 
And so as we study uh, today, we're going to be, uh, it's going to be very easy for us to see why Gideon ended up in the Hall of Faith. It should be easy, easy for us to see. Now, let me just quickly set the context. We will remember that God has used Midian to oppress Israel. He raised them up and he handed Israel over to them. And this has been going on for seven years. And when the people finally cried out to God, he raised up Gideon. He called on Gideon. He said, I want you to be the deliverer. Well, Gideon wasn't ready. And we've moved through this to the point to where God took control of Gideon and he created this army. He formed a giant army, 32,000 men. And they were ready to go to war against Midian. And then Gideon lost heart again. He started getting scared. And that's when he set that fleece before God two times. And so we see that God has, you know, tolerated his weak faith. And this has brought Gideon to the place we're at today, where after that second fleece, that second miracle, Gideon was like, okay, God is going to hand the Midians over, Midianites over to us. I can trust him. And so we finally got Gideon at a place where he is trusting God. He's finally ready. And this begins our study in our chapter 7. It begins in verse 1. It's Jerob and Baal. That's how that works. Okay, Let, Contends with Baal. So that's how that new word that his dad gave him. Jerub, Jerob, Baal. That is Gideon. And everyone who was with him got up early. This is the, the, the military. This army. And everyone who was with him got up early and camped beside the stream of Parad. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah in the valley. Sounds like we need a map. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag. I did it myself. So now announce in the presence of the people, Whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leap Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the people turned back, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many people. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So you can just imagine, like if some big monster guy, he's the one that doesn't get to go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was 300 men. And all the rest of the people knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. I read that wrong. I will deliver to you. I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and had them hand the Midianites over to you. But everyone else is to go home. So Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but he kept the 300 who took the people's provisions and their trumpets. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Well, I'm sorry. But we do need to look at this. This is the Valley of Jezreel. And so, 
you can see Mount Tabor. As you go down, you come to Jezreel. Well, in between Mount Tabor and Jezreel is that little elevated mound that's brown, and that's Mount Mora. Now, you see Jezreel, and a mile and a half to the right is the spring of Herod. So this is where they're at. So it's telling us that the Midianites are in between Mount Mora and Mount Tabor, and Gideon and his army are on the other side of that elevation of Mount Mora, so they can't see each other. Okay? Now you'll remember you see Mount Geboa. Um, we studied how Deborah and Barak won that mighty battle. That's because that river that flows from Geboa, it runs west out there to the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know if you can see the water there on the very far left, but that's the Mediterranean Sea. And it runs in that direction. Well, the spring of Herod, or Herod, does the opposite. It runs down the mountain and then to the right and ultimately ends up going into the Jordan River. So enough of that. Kind of help you see where, the, where we're at, where this great battle is getting ready to occur. The Midianites are over there between Mount Tabor and Mount Mora, and Gideon and his army are on this side of Mount Mora. And at one point we're going to read how they, they climb up Mount Mora and they're looking down on the sea of people. That's what's getting ready to happen. Now this here is the spring of Herod. It's real. It's still there. And you can see how that's at the base of Mount Geboa, and it begins to climb. So it's pretty neat. Well, as we study all of this stuff in the Bible with Gideon, we want to make sure that we uh, keep the big picture. That we never forget what it is that's actually accomplishing, being accomplished by God. Um, you know, why he, he raised up Midian, to oppress Israel, why he's called Gideon, why he's formed this battle. And, uh, you know, when we think about all of these things that's getting ready to happen, the things that's already happened, tearing down the idols and all of this kind of stuff, what is it God is trying to accomplish? You know, we've, we already know that the victory has been guaranteed. As soon as they go to battle, they're going to win. God has promised that to them. It's a guaranteed victory. But by reducing the army, he is forcing Israel to realize who it is that's giving the victory. There will be no mistaking who won the battle. God does this not because he is selfish like we are and he wants the credit. God is doing this because He wants the nation to see Him for who He is. And it wasn't too many weeks ago, we talked about giving God glory and how, uh, you know, when you, you know, who wants to have someone groveling at your feet, laying flat on the ground in front of you, wanting to kiss your toes, you know? Who wants that? What kind of a God wants something like that? And so, when we look at it from the back end like that, we're looking at it all wrong. You have to look at it from the front. You have to remember that 
when you see God for who He is in relation to you, when you're, when you're honest about it, it brings incredible humility. And all of a sudden, you see God for who He really is. And He is amazing, wonderful, powerful, compassionate, intelligent. He's everything we're not and more. All of the good things that you have, He's that and more. And all of a sudden, things start to be put into a proper perspective. And so, all God is asking is for Israel to recognize Him for who He is. What He's trying to do is to turn the nation's heart back to Him. That's the big picture. That's the ultimate objective here. But in the process of us studying this, we also see how God is preparing Gideon for what it is He wants him to do. When God called Gideon, he wasn't ready. That may be you here today. He would like to do stuff with you, but you're not quite ready. You're not done cooking. And so we will watch this happen. We've been watching this for two weeks as we've been studying about Gideon. We're going to see it some more this morning. What the things that God does to get Gideon ready so that he can use him. And uh, there's basically three things that we see God looking for in Gideon's life. There are three things that God looks for in our life. There are three essentials in preparing us for God's use. And so we're going to go through those three. The first one is humility. Humility. What we just read was God trying to take the wind out of Israel's sails so that they weren't proud. Humility. Now, in the Bible, humility does not mean that you have low self-esteem. That's not what it means at all. It just means that you have a proper understanding of yourself in relation to God. When people don't have the proper relation, don't, when the people don't have a proper understanding, there's pride. And so, humility means you have a you have an attitude of dependence. Now, depending upon God does not mean that you need Him when you get saved. You need Him to go to heaven. And then you take care of your business on your own with all of your resources, talents, and abilities, and your money and stuff. And you only depend on God the next time when you get yourself in some kind of a jam that you can't take care of on your own. That's not what depending upon God means. It's supposed to be an attitude that transcends that initial reality when you finally realize that you needed God to rescue you when you die. I've got a really big problem. I'm a messed up person. I'm going to die, and someday I'm going to be facing God. I'm in bad shape. I need Him to do something for me. I need grace. I need mercy. I'm dependent upon Him completely. Well, some people have come to that place in their life, and some people haven't. But those of us who have, God has rescued us, and we've We've trusted our lives and we put our lives in Jesus' hands. And so when I die, I'm going to be completely counting on Jesus. I'm not going to rattle off all the stuff I've done and I wore a tie to church or anything stupid like that. It's going to be all about what Jesus did for me on the cross. That's the only reason I have any hope in going to heaven. Well, I put my faith in Him. And you have too, most of you, I think. Um, I haven't heard a testimony from all of you, but for most of you I have. And 
not that you have to give it to me. I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying that most of us or all of us have come to a place to where we have depended upon God for our salvation, but we have a tendency to, once that box is checked, to just live our lives. You know, the car payment is our problem. What we're going to eat tonight is our problem. And it's only when our health is wrecked or something bad's happening with one of our loved ones or something that we seem to turn back to God where we're really depending upon Him again. He's got our attention. Well, humility is an attitude that transcends salvation and invades every aspect of our daily life. God wants us to be dependent upon Him at all times. It's an attitude of dependence. That's humility. Well, here in our Bible, what we've read so far, we see that Gideon was finally at a place where he was trusting God. And uh, what does God do to poor Gideon? You know, he's, he's went through all of this stuff to where he's finally ready to go. God takes that test and he puts it into the fire and he tests it. And he said, Gideon, you've got too many men. That was not what Gideon wanted to hear. You know, the Bible tells us over and over again that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it kind of gives us a real evil picture of what pride is like in our lives. It says here that, that if, if God did not reduce this army, that once they won, they would be tempted to brag and say, I did it myself, and actually steal God's praise. That lets us know that we can steal God's praise, things that's, that's due to Him, and we take the credit for it. It's a bad thing, pride in a person's life. Um, we think about King Saul, and you may think about different things you remember about him from the Bible, and most of them aren't very good. But at a certain time, it wasn't that way with him. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel is talking to the king. And Samuel is like the last judge. Samuel is a prophet. Right at the end of all of this, there's Samuel that we're studying right now. So Samuel is talking to King Saul in chapter 15, and he says, you know, at one point, you were small in your own eyes. In other words, at one point, King, you had humility. And when you were, and you, when you were small in your own eyes, he said, God made you king of Israel. So that tells us that this is something we have to have in the beginning, but it's something we have to have Afterwards, too, it's something that we have to have to have and protect for longevity in our lives. Humility. So God decides he's going to winnow down this army of 32,000 men. And there in verse 3, he starts the process. He says, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave. Whoever's afraid, you may go ahead and leave. Now, this is an instruction that is from the Mosaic Law. It's something that Israel would do before every battle, every single battle. And uh, the, the instructions for it are found in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And what would happen is uh, they would, the army 
you would come before the army and you would say, remember that, uh, that God is going to give you the victory. It says uh, right from the beginning, it says, don't be afraid. So here's talking about people who are afraid, but right from the beginning it says, don't be afraid. God is with you, and God is going to fight for you against your enemies. And then the priest comes before the army, and he begins to give the exception clause. And he says things like, uh, um, he says things like, if, you're, if you've got a new home that's never been dedicated to the Lord, go back home and do that. If you have a vineyard that's never been harvested yet, go back home and take care of the vineyard. If you are engaged, but you've never yet married, go back home and take care of that. But in verse 8, there's one aspect here about people who are afraid. And he says, and this is verse 8, he says, let them leave and return home. Why? So that his brother's hearts won't melt like his own. It's because fear is contagious. You've got to get that rotten apple out of the rest of the other apples. So when someone's afraid, they've got to be removed. That tells you and me that when God has something He's wanting to accomplish, if we are in the way, He will remove us. Because He is going to do what He's going to do. And so you always want to be on the right side. Well, they've been told that you know, in this instruction, don't be afraid. God is with you. God will fight for you against your enemies. But if you are afraid, you need to leave. Knowing it was God's will for them to go down there and rout the Midianites, 22,000 men left. 22,000. More than two-thirds of the army. You can just imagine the sound of all of those people getting their gear and leaving. It would have been really bad. You know, I'm sure Gideon was just like, oh, this is great, you know. And then he's looking at 10,000 men. He's like, okay, okay, we've got 10,000. 10, and then God says, you've still got too many. And so he, he gives them a test. Take them down to the water. Take them down to the spring. And I've never seen it before, but apparently this thing goes and dumps into like a big reservoir. It's really big. Then it somehow kind of cascades down to the Jordan River. It's probably really pretty to see. But this is where they're at. And it tells us that uh, they took the men in sections and they, they walked them down to the river to get a drink. And, and the men who stuck their whole face down into the water and drank, those were the people who were eliminated. The ones who stayed were the ones who knelt down and brought water up to their mouth. Now, since I was a little boy in Sunday school, I've always told that the reason the 300 stayed was because they were the vigilant ones. They were still looking around at the enemy and ready for, for battle. That's how I was always understood that. And that might be true. But the reason God separated them may be arbitrary from our perspective. We may not actually know why God eliminated 9,700 men and kept 300 because the whole point up to this point has been to the whole point up to this point. <laughs> All right, so uh, up to this point, uh, what God has been trying to do is to get Israel to see their weakness so that they will depend upon his strength. And so to suddenly elevate these 300 men as these were the best of the best and vigilant 
it seems to kind of work against that. Um, especially since 9,700 men had stayed and said, we will fight. You know. But the big picture is, is that God reduced 10,000 down to 300. He completely stacked the odds against Israel. One thing I get out of that is that the mundane small things, the small responsibilities that we have are important because we never know who's watching. They just might be a test. Well, verse 8 of what we just read, the last verse of what we just read, verse 8, it tells us that the camp of Midian was below Gideon in the valley. And so now, for that to be possible, we know that this, these 300 men have climbed this Mount Mora, and now they can see the Midianites all down below them in the valley. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. You know, to say that the odds were stacked against them is an understatement. We haven't read it yet, but in chapter 8, verse 10, we find out how many men there were. Now, the Midianites had their, their moms and dads and their kids and the whole bunch was in there. So the, the whole valley was just full of the sea of people. But the actual fighting army, we're told in chapter 8, verse 10, is 135,000 men. So 300 guys are going to go up against 135,000. God basically removed everything that Gideon could possibly rely upon except him. So the first essential we have seen here for preparing us for serving God is humility. And the second one is trust. We have to trust God. We don't doubt God. We come to Him in faith. Beginning in verse 9. That night, so this is that night after he separated this army. That night the Lord said to him, Get up and go into the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go to the camp, go with Pura, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you will be strengthened to go to the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the Quetamites, the people from the east, had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts. And their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. And his friend, his friend answered, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. So that night, God told Gideon to attack Midian. <laughs> he said, but if you are afraid, go with Purah. It must have been written all over his face. <laughs> I don't want to be mine. I'm on the top of this hill. I'm looking down at this sea of people. He wanted to trust God, but he was just so scared. 
God was basically asking him to step off of the cliff into thin air. He might as well have been asking him to do that. And in a few moments, he's actually going to. And that's why Gideon is in the Hall of Faith. After everything that God has done to strengthen Gideon's faith, there's still doubt. If we think back about all of the things, even though God had every right to be upset and angry with Gideon, what do we see? We see him being gentle and patient and compassionate. He said, why don't you go with Pearl? Listen to what they say, and you will be strengthened. Yeah, good God. So in verse 11, it says that when they snuck down there, they went to the, the army, the outpost of the troops, where the army was. They're the ones that are going to do the fighting. And they overheard this dream about this loaf of bread. Now, usually a loaf of bread is not real scary. You know, you don't see, you know, bread, run for it. You know, that's not really what we do. But this, uh, this giant loaf of bread rolls down and smashes this tent. What's really neat about this is that the Midianites, we find out, knew who Gideon was. And they knew who the God of Israel was. The barley loaf obviously is Israel, and the tent is Midian. What are the odds of those guys going down there and hearing that conversation? And I love the words in verse 12. It's so descriptive that they had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts. They were no longer up in the air swarming around, but had settled down into the valley. And they were just down there eating. Final essentials, humility, trust, and the final one is to follow. So God wants you to have an attitude of humility. He wants you to trust Him. And then He wants you to do something. He wants you to, to work, to follow, for your faith to have action. Beginning in verse 15. When Gideon heard... I got one more slide. Let me change it for you. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to Israel's camp and he said, Get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a trumpet in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other. He said, Watch me and do the same. And when I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our trumpets, you are also to blow your trumpets all around the camp. We're going to have them surrounded. Then you will say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Well, Gideon and the 100 men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. So three groups of 300 have kind of try to go around this army as best they can. They blew their trumpets and broke their pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pitchers. 
And they held their torches in their left hands, their trumpets in their right hands, and they shouted, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And each Israelite took his position around the camp, and the entire Midianite army fled and cried out as they ran. When Gideon's men blew uh, their 300 trumpets, the Lord set the swords of each man in the army against each other. They fled, to Beth, uh, they fled in the direction of Zerah as far as the border uh, near Tabith. And then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. And so just to be clear, they surrounded them the best as they could. And when they broke those pitchers, they blew the trumpets uh, like they were getting ready to charge. They broke those pitchers, which had been really loud, and then it would have echoed. And then those big tr torches, they would have felt like those torches represented masses of people. So they felt like they were surrounded by this massive army. I think verse 15 is the best verse in the book so far. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its, in <clears throat> and its interpretation, he bowed and worshiped. There's that humility. There was that trust. And he was ready to follow. He returned to Israel's camp and he said, Get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Come on, you guys. Then we see that the Midianites fled and they cried out as they ran. They were terrified. And God confused them, setting the swords of each man in the army against each other. And as the survivors fled, the men of Israel were called to help pursue Midian. We saw that in the last verse, Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh were called. And so the survivors of this melee were now on the run, and Israel was in pursuit. This is where we stopped reading this morning. Humility means that we're honest with God about ourselves and trust and follow. God wanted Gideon to realize that he was in an impossible situation without him. God wanted Israel to realize that they were in an impossible situation without him. It's the same way God wants us to see our sin. You know, we're all going to die. And we're all sinners. So we've got a problem. How are we going to solve that problem? Most people, most people you know, are going to try to solve that on their own. They think that if God's real, and I do come in front of Him, I can talk about my life. I was basically good. It's going to be all about you. God wants to remove all of those lies, those ways that you deceive yourselves, those false things that you tell yourself about yourself. Strip it all away to where you realize that you are in an impossible situation without Him. You have to have Him. You need His grace and mercy. This is why He sent His Son. We have to realize that we are in an impossible position with our sin. 
And I talked about this, that, that you know, when, when you come to that place in your life, when you receive Christ as your savior, it doesn't end there. You're supposed to have that attitude of dependence upon him for the rest of the time. You're supposed to realize that on a daily basis, you are in an impossible situation. Now, that doesn't mean that when you walk into the bathroom in the morning and you see the tube of toothpaste and your toothbrush and you think to yourself, this is impossible. There's no way I can do this. You look at, there's your shoes on the floor. Somehow they've got to get on. You know. But honestly, those two examples are perfect for what I'm trying to explain. Because some people have a lot of difficulty with their, their oral hygiene and their teeth and brushing their teeth. Some people can't tie their shoes. And just that small thing all of a sudden brings your mind to the place to where you are thankful. And all of a sudden, God shows your attention even in the small things. You know, God wants us to, to pray all day, to have an attitude of prayer, an attitude of dependence at all times.